You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Okay, church, have you ever been around a professional athlete? Like someone in the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball? Because when you're around them, you kind of know. They are usually a solid six inches or more taller than you. For me, more like nine inches. They are usually hugely muscled. They're usually younger, fit, and often pretty wealthy. There is a distinctiveness that you just know this person does something for work that's not like what I do. They work with their bodies to perform in a way where people clap. That is not what I do for a living. That is not what most people do for a living. The same thing happens when you meet a U.S. senator. When you meet her, it is this powerful presence that there's a seriousness, a smartness, a friendliness that gets votes. There's a powerfulness. They got a staff kind of hovering all around her. They're articulate. They have presence. They fill up a room. You just know there's something distinctive that this person belongs to something that maybe I'm not a part of. It's a different thing thing. And that's what Paul's telling us. He says, you Christians, you are to be a distinctive people. In the Old Testament, God's distinctive people was a Jewish distinctiveness. They had law, they had a language, they had a land. But in the New Testament, God is saying, you are now my distinctive people. And the distinctive thing about you is first, you're called to Christ. You're called to a new master. You're called to the true Lord. You're called to the true God. But then that calling to Christ results in both new character and a new creed, a new thing that we believe. And it makes us this distinctive other people so that when people meet us, they may not know what it's all about, but they know you belong to something else. There's a distinctive flavor about you. When we receive the gospel, Jesus died and rose for us. We become citizens of God's kingdom. Ephesians 2.19 puts it this way. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer just anybody. You are somebody because you belong to Jesus. You are a fellow citizen with the saints and members of God's household. You become a member of God's family. You join the saints, not just in this church, but every church in every church of all time. You become this special people on earth that's loved by God. And this distinctiveness starts with a call to Christ himself. Look at verse one with me. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, this is Bible reading 101, but we all need the basics. When you see a therefore, you should ask, what's it? Uh Uh-huh, nice. And what Paul's referring to is the first three chapters of Ephesians. Those are three chapters about the gospel talk. He's talking to us about how God saves us. He's talking to us about how God builds a church. He's talking to us about all the things the gospel does. But then chapters four through six, he's going to tell us about the gospel walk. He's going to say all of this 
now impacts how you walk. And when you think about the therefore, what's it there for? He says, because of the gospel, A, I'm a prisoner. Nothing tells someone you're serious about something like your willingness to suffer. Some people are attracted to citizens by the mere idea that, hey, starting a new church is hard. Starting a new church is difficult. Starting a new church takes a perseverance of spirit. Starting a new church means you have to work hard and work together and volunteer and all sorts of things. You can't just come and go or you won't fit in. Starting a new church, that's part of the suffering for the gospel. It hopefully doesn't feel like prison. Hopefully it feels like joy. But there is a change from saying, I'm not gonna be a consumer, I'm gonna be a server. I'm going to be like these deacons. I'm going to follow their lead in something that speaks a better word. But the therefore is the second thing. He says, because of the gospel, I urge you, I urge you, this is a full-grown man urging you to walk in a manner worthy of Christ to what we've called to. And it's easy to blow by that word walk. You know, you probably heard it a bunch or heard something like it. But imagine being in Ephesus, a town of 50, 60,000 people, and there's no bikes, there's no cars, there's no buses, there's no subway, there's no airplanes, there's boats that take forever, and a couple rich people have a horse. You walked all day long. You couldn't go to market, you couldn't go to school, you couldn't go to work, you couldn't be in the fields, you couldn't visit a town, you couldn't see your family, you couldn't eat, you couldn't do a single thing unless you walked. So when it talks about the walk, Paul's telling you the everyday grind of your life, the every moment, pace by pace, step by step, You are to walk in a manner worthy, distinctive of following Jesus. And verse two and three explains what that distinctiveness feels like. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, you should be a big deal for Jesus. You should try to be a Christian celebrity. Instead, he says this, look at this. It's relational advice. It's how to have friends. It's how to be in relationship. Verse two and three, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves, tying yourself like a rope together in peace. See, the gospel creates a new character in us. And Paul picks out these four particulars, humility, gentleness, patience, and a forgiving love. And they kind of give a framework of following Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. To where your Christianity, yes, we do worship on Sunday, but it's mostly about all the other 164 hours of your week. It's the everyday stuff of life. And they're not random virtues. These things come from Galatians 5, walking in the spirit. They come from an obvious life of Christ. And when we look at humility and gentleness, they go together kind of like peanut butter and jelly or like my son, peanut butter and honey on a sandwich. All right? Humble people aren't worried about themselves. Humble people don't insist on their own way. 
humble people are easy and gentle with folks, even when they talk about hard things. You should be so gentle that even when you have to share some tough truths, you got to talk about money with someone. You got to talk about you being hurt by someone. You're so gentle that they're like, wait a minute, are they really mad or not? That you could be truthful and kind and gentle. That Jesus could talk about serious things, talk about people's sins, but in a way they go, oh my gosh, is it really true? Is it true what he says? He's the master who wouldn't even quench out a flame on a candle. He doesn't crush a smoldering wick. Humble people are a gentle people. It doesn't mean they're not truthful. It doesn't mean they don't stand up for themselves. They do those. But they do it in a nonviolent way. They don't intimidate to get their way. They're not aggressive to get their goals. But they're secure in God's love. We often miss humility thinking it's calling us to be shy, calling us to be quiet calling us to struggle with self-worth. But really, gospel humility from God looks more like this. It's one of my favorite quotes. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Humility comes from just taking the focus, the spotlight of your life off yourself and putting it on to Jesus. Humility grows, humility like this grows from a nearness to God. And suddenly when you're near the Lord, we're a lot less tempted to make ourselves important. And it only makes sense to rightly see ourselves beside this glorious Lord. It puts us in our place in a helpful way, not putting us down, but helping us see, as Jamal said once, our actual size. Pride is having or showing a high or excessively high opinion of oneself or one's importance. That's what pride is. We're not talking about pride that your daughter kicked in a soccer goal. That's awesome. You go nuts when you see your kids succeed. But pride is thinking more of yourself than you ought, thinking more of your accomplishments than you should. But gospel humility is having a high opinion of God and being secure in his love, where you got nothing to lose. You got nothing to prove. There's nothing to show off because it's about Jesus. Even when you achieve big, you can just celebrate it for what it is. It doesn't have to be your whole life. A mature Christians have a life, have a walk that's simply not about them. A mature Christian walk is a gentle one. They know wrath doesn't win. You don't get far by insisting on your own way and pounding the table for everything you want. Mature Christians walk with patience. Pastor Zach Eswine claims this. He says, the chief sin of the American church is impatience. We simply want everything now, like on-demand movies or on-demand Chipotle or drive throughs when we think about it, though, Jesus compares our spiritual growth over and over to fruit, to fields, to seeds, because often our growth takes time. A baby takes a decade and a half, maybe two decades to become an adult. How much more your soul? Do you think your soul is more or less complicated than your physical body? I'd say more, and most of us didn't come to Christ as a one-year-old. 
A lot of us are living as spiritual toddlers and we just don't know better. Instead of judging ourselves or beating ourselves up, what if, as the scripture says, we made a little allowance, made a little space to let ourselves and everyone grow up together? See, impatient farmers worry about everyone else's growth while their own crops die. Impatient farmers worry about everybody else's crops while their own fields wither. A patient farmer keeps their eyes on their own crops and begs God for rain. Church, are you begging God for rain on the garden of your heart? Are you seeing your deep need that the soil needs water again? That renewal is the only way forward? I need more grace today than I did yesterday. I hope I grow more aware of my need for God as the years go by. I don't need them less. I actually find out I need them much more than I thought. The goal of your growth is to receive more from God, not less. And I got news that Jesus tends to water the hearts that know their thirst. When Jesus says in John 7, come, who? Who does he say come to him? Whoever is thirsty and I will give you water that leads to eternal life. When you come to community group with your hands open, ready to receive, I'm gonna bet you tend to leave full of good things. When you come to church ready to receive, I got a feeling God is gonna generously give to you. And finally, mature Christians, they make allowance to forgive people. Making allowance is a nice way of saying, because the literal Greek is better. It literally says, put up with one another. (laughs) They class it up with make allowance or make space or bear with one another. But what it says is put up with each other. And love doesn't mean, this Christian loving walk doesn't mean everyone you meet is your deep best friend. That is impossible. Studies show you can only have two to four daily close friends. Then there's a next ring. You can have about a dozen good friends that you see on a weekly, monthly basis. After that, everyone else is an acquaintance. You should focus on building good friends and then they can float into those deep friendships. And that's amazing. But you can't be best friends with every person. In fact, we have all sorts of relationships. And man, sometimes love is putting up with a boss you do not like. Sometimes love is putting up with annoying coworkers. Sometimes love is putting up, just choosing not to snap at people, choosing not to demonize them in your head, choosing not to get angry, choosing not to be bitter, but to say, hey, they're in my life. They're a part of the walk. They're meant to love them. I might need to draw a boundary here to keep everybody safe or to make everyone not feel crazy. But man, A Christian is called to put up with people both in the church and outside the church to make some space to actually say, I love you and I'm not here to throw you away and treat you like trash. The world tosses people constantly. Look how little forgiveness there is in the world. If we wanna be God's distinctive people, starting with forgiveness is a good place. Starting with forgiveness is a very beautiful place. And the gospel power to do this comes from here. We must relish in the fact that we have been forgiven. We are the forgiven people. God's forgiven us. That's the power. 
But then we also know the humility, we're still prone to sin, that we too blow it. And we must realize everybody annoys somebody. If you're annoyed by people, I'll wager all my money that they're also annoyed by you. I'm thankful that y'all put up with me week after week. Thank you. Keep putting up with me. Thank you. Christians put up with annoying people, immature people, uncool people, people who just don't get it, people who are different. Why? Because God more than puts up with you. He's calling you to come partway on the journey here. And Jesus went the whole way to turn a people who are rebels and sinners and angry and God-haters and idolaters and flip them to his kids and welcomes them home no matter what they've done. And I want to share three ways from the Carl, Elena, Justin, Eloise, Tyler home because this works up to maintaining unity, how? With a bond of peace. How do we go about keeping peace with sinful actors everywhere? Not my wife. She does it, you know, hardly sins, main sinner. But we got three rules in our house that go like this of how we keep the peace, how we keep the bond of peace. One, we keep short accounts. Two, we consider one another. And three, we burn the grudge tapes. The first one, we keep short accounts. Don't let your accounts with friends or family or coworkers get long. Don't let your debts of love, your list against them, don't let them get long. Keep a short account. If there's something you have against your brother or sister or someone who doesn't believe, go to them in the ability you can. That's what Matthew 18 does. But you go to them, as Matthew 18 says, ready to forgive them. You actually go with forgiveness in hand, maybe even already forgiving them, going to help them see that you've been offended and how you're going to work through this. But it also says in 1 Peter 4 that love overlooks a multitude of sins. Not every offense you have to become a lawyer for. You can just forgive people, carte blanche. You can just let love overlook the sin. If it's something that's going to really impede the relationship, talk about it. If it's something dangerous, talk about it. If it's something big, talk about it. But if you can overlook it, it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense, as the Proverbs tell us. Number two, consider one another. This is an awesome way to grow in every way. Philippians 2.4 says, look after not only your own interests, but the interests of another. You can solve a lot of conflict by thinking through how my words and actions will impact other people. You can solve a lot of conflict. Sadly, it took me six years to consider my wife how she takes her coffee in the morning. Six. It was, it's both funny, but it was also humiliating to really think I had made coffee for six years nearly every morning and not really considered how Elena watch, makes her coffee. I'd missed this opportunity to serve her. But it also, when you make your schedule for the week, when you make how you communicate with others, when you do these things, if you consider the other person's interests, you can avoid a lot of conflict and make a lot of peace. Love starts with considering the other. 
Jesus kept the shortest account by paying our account in full. God considered our needs by sending his son to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins. He saw our sinless, helpless state and did something about it to come save his people. And last, it goes with the gospel as well. We burn the grudge tapes. A grudge tape is like the YouTube clips of all your worst moments. It's when you're in an argument with someone and you're arguing about one thing and then you like go back to your filing cabinet, unlock the DVDs of here's everything you've ever done wrong in this relationship. And you just start popping them in the DVD player or pulling them up on YouTube. That's a grudge tape. Here's everything deep down I haven't really forgiven you for and I remind you for when we get in an argument or a disagreement. And as long as you're holding on to the grudge tapes, you're going no further than where that grudge is kept. That is a time stamp on when your relationship stopped growing. So to maintain peace, you gotta burn the grudge tapes. Work through it, forgive the people, move on or peace becomes impossible. Because one day they're gonna have so many grudges against you and you against them that you can't even talk. It happens in a church, it happens in a marriage, it happens in friendships, it happens with your parents, with your kids. Everybody hurts everybody. Sin should hurt us, sin should shock us, but sin cannot keep surprising us. And if Jesus burns your grudge tapes, can you burn other people's and just let it go? It may change the nature of the relationship for sure, of what they did or what they said or what you did or what you said, sure. But it doesn't mean you get to hold it over their head forever because God doesn't do that to you. That's how we maintain peace. And the walk, it's worthy and distinct. It's a distinct way you relate through your everyday life but it's also more than character. That the gospel actually calls us to a new creed, a new belief system. Look at verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And this idea of a creed from God is something that kind of flies in the face of popular religion and spirituality today. You probably hear like I do all the time, hey, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Or I'm spiritual, but I don't believe in organized religion. Really really common things to hear. And both statements are coming from a place of, I don't want anyone, including God, to tell me what to do. And or... I'm hurt, I've been wounded by negative religion experiences, so I'm just out. And while both of those things, I can understand the appeal of both, both sentiments kind of land you in the same place with putting yourself at the center of your spirituality, where you get to define the creed and what goes and what belongs and what doesn't. And Christianity, family, is just not that. We don't make up our own creed. Christians, we are religious. We believe certain things. We have a faith of substance that comes from God to us. 
the gospel doesn't erupt from inside us. It comes from beyond us and outside of us to us to live in us. We did not write the Bible. And if you claim to write the Bible, we can have a side conversation. It is truth that comes to us and grows in us. Yes, a relationship with God with, through Jesus is the center of our religion, but it's a religion. And faithful Christians are a part of organized religion. The letter of Ephesians is written to the church of Ephesians. The context of all the New Testament is the local church. We don't have a DIY or a do-it-yourself faith. Christianity is instead carefully crafted by the word of God to us. And this small passage, it's just two, version, two verses, actually makes seven different theological claims. Take a look with me. We can put them into two categories. First, Paul claims God's unity is Trinity, that God is one Holy Spirit, one Lord Jesus, and one God and Father of all. And Paul's moving to this idea that unity isn't just something God likes, it's something that God is. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but one being, one substance, co-equal and eternal. This Trinity exists in perfect harmony with itself. It is the model for unity, and it exists in perfect unity for all time. So much of Christian doctrine hangs on the Trinity that to get it wrong is disastrous. That's why Mormons are not a part of the Christian faith or Jehovah's Witness or anything that misses the Trinity is missing and in serious error. And this unity is also our unity. As Paul says, look, we have a unity from God. It's overflowing from God's unity that we're one body, the church. That there's one holy universal church. It's expressed in local churches, but you're connected to all Christians of all time. We're different members of the same body of Christ. We have one hope. We're all moving towards one future. We have one faith through Christ alone we are saved and one baptism. And when you think about that, think how cool baptism and communion really are. That we've been doing these same two rituals for 2,000 years, physically done by Christians, every Sunday or every so often that we all have experienced this same very thing. Our unity rests on God's unity and what God's done to unite us together. He's united us into one body. He's united us into one hope in heaven, united us into one faith, believing in nothing but Jesus to be first and foremost. We don't believe in politics first and foremost. We have one faith. We don't believe in money or sexuality or our high school or college or our growing up friends first. We don't believe in our family first, but we place our faith in Jesus first. It's one faith, not many. And when we're called to Christ, he gives us this new character, but he also builds us this new creed that makes you distinctive to the world and their gifts from God that grow in us. But when we look at all of our unity and our distinctiveness, we aren't clones. You are still you, but new following Jesus. See, Jesus gifts us his unity, but we're not called to uniformity. Just as God is unified as one and three as a trinity, so we have a diversity about us. 
And when we think about diversity, often we run to color of skin, color of hair, ethnicity, but Paul's actually arguing in this portion that we have a diversity spiritually. That's not a mistake, but actually a gift from God that he gives on purpose because the unity in all these ones, all seven of those ones, is held together in expression of diversity spiritually in his people that makes a beautiful church that needs one another. Look at verse seven. It says, but grace was given to who? Each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift, according to the measure of his gift, according to how God apportioned it out. And he didn't give it because, oh yeah, I know, I know Jackson, he's so great, he gets extra. He gave them as gifts, just like salvation. We do nothing to earn or deserve our gifts. Instead, God gives us gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Paul's quoting Psalm 68, which is talking about God conquering his enemies, namely the devil and spiritual powers and evil. And then on top of conquering the bad guys, saving a helpless people and us, he welcomes us into the house, welcomes us into the family with gifts. He actually gives us spiritual gifts to live and serve in the household, a role to play in the local body, a role to play on earth. And while we don't earn or deserve these gifts, just like salvation, they are to be rightly stewarded. They are to be rightly stewarded with character and creed. There's a place for them. And we're gonna get in the spiritual gifts more next week as this passage continues. But we need to see that our unity is given from Christ to walk in a worthy way for you to be you following Christ. Your goal isn't to be just like me. That's a bad template to say you want to be just like Justin or just like Ben or just like McKenna. You guys are great, but the kingdom needs you with a new heart, a new character, following Jesus with the gifts you've been given in the portion he's given you. When you walk in that, you can be assured you're walking straight in the will of God that he's prepared for you to do. You have a place in the kingdom. It doesn't say, and some people got no gifts. It also doesn't say that everyone will be the most gifted. That there's a diversity of gifts that God has mysteriously brought together to build up his body and grow us so that we could walk together in a manner worthy of our calling and character and creed.